Welcome back to Distinct Nostalgia by MIM. More than a podcast. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. Now we've been celebrating Corrie's 60 years with people who've either been in the show for a long time or who left a noticeable mark during their time on the street. But this next guest is quite different. Dave Dutton has played an incredible 11 parts in Corrie over 35 years. It's an amazing story and he's been telling Ashley all about it. I wonder how many of his short-lived characters you can remember. Dave, it's uh, great to speak to you. 35 years you've been appearing on and off in Coronation Street. You've had 11 separate parts, is that right? 11 separate parts, or were they? Were some of them returners? No, there are 11 separate parts. Uh, a couple were with no names, uh, like photographer, um, even after I'd had a name as a photographer. So, but yes, um, 11 separate parts over the years. Fabulous, fabulous. So take us back, and we'll talk about that very first encounter with Corrie um, yeah. 35 years ago in a moment. But what what had you been doing before then? Were you, were you already, obviously you were already doing bits of acting here and there, were you? What was your, what were you up to at that particular point? We're talking about what? Nine, what are we talking about? We're talking about 1985, are we talking about? It was 85, the first role in Corrie, but before that, I'd had bits and pieces as an extra. Um, you know, like um, Bill Tarmy started as an extra and uh, um, Liz Dawn. Um, I was doing bits and pieces like at the bar in the Rovers, guest at Eddie's wedding, um, street furniture, you know, that sort of thing, walking about. And then... One day I got a call to go in and ask... No, the, the first the first thing I remember that stuck in my mind about Corey was I was in the Rovers and the director said to me, can you play darts? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm quite a good darter. He said, well, what I want you to do at the start of this shot is get a bull, a bullseye with the first dart. He says, I'm relying on you, I'm relying on you. So I thought... Blimey, I'd better be good here. Anyway, he shout, shouts action. I threw the dart and missed by a mile. And it turns out he was having me on. <laughs> so I was, shaking, I was shaking when I was throwing the dart. So it was bits and pieces like that in the Rovers. And then I got a call one day from the agent, said, go to casting. They're looking for a brewery dray man who's delivering some ale to the Rovers. So I went along. And Judy Hayfield was the casting director then. She was legendary. Uh, so she was there, and with the director was Malcolm Alsop. And I read a little bit as the uh, as the brewery drayman. And at the end of it, she said, yeah, that was good. She said, but there's a bigger party. Do you want to have a go at it? I said, what is it? She said, it's a guy who's got a superstore, and he's selling... Um, he's going into the Weatherfield Gazette office and um, placing adverts and, and it gets into talking with Ken Barlow and uh, the girl who works there. It's it's a bigger part. Do you want to have a go? And I thought, yeah, why not? So I gave it a go and uh, at the end of it, she said, well, that was good. And the, uh, the director, Malcolm Olsup, said, well, that works for me. Yeah, you can have the part. So I thought, oh, that's... I was shaking. I had a cup of coffee and I couldn't put it to my lips. <laughs> it was like wobble, 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 wobble. I went out of there feeling 10 foot tall and I got the part. 
So it was a guy called Eric Priestley who um, managed to persuade Ken Barlow to uh, get rid of his Uncle Albert's old sideboard and replace him with some modern units. And it was going to be three episodes. So I worked with, um, with Bill Roach, who's a fantastic guy. I mean, I went in that first day and uh, he came straight across and he said, uh, hi, uh, I'm Bill Roach, welcome to the, uh, to the cast, you know as if you didn't know who he was. And then Julie Goodyear came over and, and introduced herself. And I thought that was lovely. It puts you at your ease. Um, so, yeah, I did these uh, couple of episodes as Eric Priestley. And then there was supposed to be a third one. And I've been re rehearsing with Deirdre. And um, I'm sat in the green room, which then was in the bonded warehouse. Um, and a runner came to me and said, uh, the producer wants to see you. John Temple it was at the time. So I thought to myself, I've made it. I've made it. He's going to offer me a long-term contract here. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I went to, and he said, oh, I'll sit down, Dave. He said, um, very pleased with what you've been doing. But he said, but well, I've got to tell you, due to the constraints of time, uh, we're going to have to get rid of the, the third episode. So I walked out of there like a deflated balloon. And so they, they cut that one. They, pay, they paid me for it, but not the repeats, obviously, because... So that was that was the first part in in Corrie, and uh, you know I was I was really delighted to get it because I've been a fan since the first episode. Well, I actually watched the first episode with my mum that December. I was thirteen years old, and it came on, and we were watching it, and we lived in a two up two down in a cobbled street in Atherton which is between Bolton and Lee. And it was, uh, all, all the neighbours, we recognised, all our neighbours were the same as the people in Corrie. You know, you could recognise people in our street with the people who were in Corrie. So we were watching it and we were spellbound. And my grandma was upstairs and my mum shouted up, Mother, Mother, come down quick. There's a teleprogram on you'll like. She, she shouted down, what's it about? And she said, People like us. And I think that sums it up completely. Of, you know, Lancashire people, Manchester people, Salford people, working class people, real people. And she was spot on. Exactly. And, and, and 60 years later, it's still, it's still with us. So tell us a bit more about that, um, that part that you played, that very first part. In, in, I know you said you'd been doing extra work and bits and bobs in the Rovers and whatever before then. And we'll go back to that in a minute because there might be things you remember. But... In 1985, tell us a bit about that part. What was the issue then? He basically, obviously, Uncle Albert had, had died by that point, hadn't he? And was he looking to sort of modernise the house a bit? And uh, you know, no, he, he must have been a bit of an opportunist, uh, Eric Eric Priestley, who I play, because he went into the office um, to put some adverts in the paper. Ken was selling him some advertising space, and we got chatting, and then. Uh, he must have mentioned Uncle Albert's old sideboard, so Eric saw an opportunity to flog in some units, and I think I went round to the house and uh, said, yeah, you want to get rid of that old thing. <laughs> and I think, to this day, I'm, I'm almost correct in thinking that um, the units I sold him are still there. So Yeah, so... I don't think anything's updated, has it, really? It's the same stuff, no. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So he got rid of Albert's sideboard, but... Um, Kept the units till this day, I think, yeah. 
Which, to be honest, does happen, doesn't it? I've, I know people um, who've kept stuff for years and years and years. You go into the house and it could be like a time warp back to 20 years, you know what I mean? Because they've used the same stuff for 20-odd years. They, they get used to it and that's it. You know, it stays there, doesn't it? You know. Well, it was like my mum. She would never throw anything away. And uh, I think she cried when she got rid of her, her old sideboard for a 60s one. You, you know what I mean? It, it had been there since she was a kid. <laughs> And she was upset because, and I often wonder where it is today. You know, it was a quite a, a unique looking Victorian sideboard. So uh, it went the way of Uncle Albert's old sideboard. What was Anne Kirkbride like to work with then when you uh, encountered her at the beginning? Because she was, she'd obviously, by that point, she was pretty well established, wasn't she? Because we'd, we'd gone past the Ken Deirdre Mike phase and everything and she was... She was a big name in the eight in, by that point in the eighties, wasn't she? Well, you well, say I worked with her. I didn't get a chance to work with her because he cut that episode. <laughs> but, oh, that was the episode they cut, was it? Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Okay. We we actually uh, rehearsed it in the studio, uh, and then for some reason, time he said it, we cut the episode. But I, I got to chatting with her in the green room, and she was lovely. Um, she was talking about horoscopes, asked me what what I was for some reason, and that sort of thing, you know. But they're all lovely in Corrie, there's no doubt about it. And uh, that's part of the charm and the uh, the beauty of working in Corrie, that uh, you're made welcome. You might not be a regular cast member, you might dip in now and again, but it feels like you're going back home, you, you know, because the people are so lovely, the cast, the crew, producers, writers, Brilliant. everybody. Going back to those very early days, we'll talk a bit more about some of the parts you've had, but going back to those very early days when you'd, you'd appear in, in it, you know, as... as a sort of um, extra work or whatever it may be in the Rovers and that kind of thing. Um, you know, we, we, are we talking back into the 70s, are we, when we're talking about those? Or would it be the 80s? When were you thinking? It, you it, it would be the 80s, I think. Um, just a few yeah, years. The 80s, yeah, yeah, just a few years before I actually got the first part. I'd, do, I'd done a lot of stuff at Granada. Um, the but at that, point, yeah. at that point, there would have been still, certainly in the early 80s, there would have been some of the... Very early stars would have still been around, wouldn't they? You know, people like, um, obviously, um, uh, Bernard Hewins, who played uh, Stan Ogden, would have been around at that particular point. Jack Howarth, who played um, um, Albert Tatlock, probably Doris Speed, and, and Ina Sharples, you know, Violet Carson. Did you come across any of them at that particular point? No? Not a lot of them, because I think, sadly, by then, they, they passed on. But I remember uh, Fred G, he, he was in it. He had a fight, I think, with uh, Ken Barlow or, or Mike Baldwin. I remember him battling in the Rovers. Uh, and Bernard Ewins, uh, Stan Ogden, he was in it. But by that stage, he was in a real bad state, unfortunately. He was, uh, he'd had a couple of heart attacks, I think, or strokes, and he was... He was battling on gamely, but it was sad to see him. He was sort of bent over and he wasn't in a good way at all. And um, it was sad to see him in that state because I loved the character, you know. He was a, he was a great character. So he, he was about um, not many of the older ones, sadly. I would have loved to have met them. Um, but you said that so you did You did at least um, encounter um, Jeffrey Hughes, who played um, Eddie Yates, didn't you? We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do 
do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying to oh, yeah, I'm trying to yeah. oh, yeah. get them on there. Yeah. We all artists, man. We go you feel me? We gonna have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right with this I got lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I got lie, don't play with it. Don't play with it. No. Take that shit serious. Yeah, I was a guest at Eddie's wedding um, to the CB girl who he, 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 he yeah, he, yeah, he met. They met over the. Was it something little? Uh, Something little, I can't remember what it was now, but yeah, I was a guest at his wedding, but didn't speak. That was a, another bit of the extra work. But I met up with him many years later in Heartbeat, where I played a, a ticket inspector on a train. I think it was his penultimate episode where he was escaping from the tra- uh, taxman dressed as a woman. And it was on the... Uh, the the railway up there near Gotland, the uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's an actual steam train. So yeah. we spent the day going up and down in this steam train. He was dressed as a woman, getting wolf whistles off the crew, uh, and I was the ticket inspector who came in asking for his tickets. And I winked at him, and he, I think he said, Jeffrey said, "Ah, oh, you're in there," you know, something like that. Eddie Yates was a great character, wasn't he? It was a really great character, and. Uh... Um, you were saying there about him getting married. It was to uh, his wife was called Marion Willis. It was yeah. Marion that he got married to. I remember it really well, actually. And you're right. It was. It was. She was a CB uh, operator or something because that was a big craze then, wasn't it? CBs. Everyone had. Everyone wanted a CB. If I remember rightly. I have one. Yeah, yeah I have one. Lancashire lad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It was a big thing in the early eighties. Big, big thing. Yeah. We had all the lingo, didn't we? Ten four, ten four. Uh, uh, keep your nose out the bri- out the ditches, and the smoke is off your britches. You know, we thought we were sort of uh, characters from Convoy. <laughs> it was it was funny, really. And all all the, all the all the guys in this area had CBs, and it was fun. It was good fun, yeah. So you were a guest at the wedding. I mean, did you did you have anything to say, or what was the? No, I was just sat in the pews. Sat, sat right, in the okay. views. It, it was funny, really. I mean, I met up with some of the other Coronation Street people doing things over the years, like um, um, Doreen Keogh, who was Conceptor Hewitt, or Conceptor Riley, I think she was, before she married Harry Hewitt. Um, I did a thing called Cutting It, where I played a cancer patient, and she was a cancer patient. We, we had quite a few episodes, and... Uh, it was really lovely meeting meeting her, and uh, she was a she was a, a lovely woman. And we had to sing um, what's it called by uh, James Waltzing Along by James, and we had to sing it. And she couldn't get a grip of the words, so I spent all day coaching her how to sing it. And we remained friends afterwards until shortly before she died. It was she was she was a lovely woman. Yeah, she had a part in uh, the royal family, didn't she? She was in the royal family for 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 a while. Yeah. She was Mary in, in the royal family. Her husband That's was right, jo- yeah. Joseph. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, so, yeah, so, um, I mean, as we mentioned Eddie Eddie Yates being a great, you know, a, a great character. So, and you mentioned Bernard, um, by the time you say you worked there, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't very well. And I do remember him still doing stuff. I remember him and thinking, oh, God, he's, you know, he is on his last legs. And, of course, sadly, he, he did die 
not so long after that, didn't he? Because um, the famous scene that of Hilda, you know, um, crying into her glasses, into his glasses. Sorry, is one of the most memorable ones on soap, isn't it? Did you get a chance to 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 talk to Jean Alexander at all? No, but the strange thing is, I used to get the train from Atherton into Manchester, and I'd reckon I'd recognise her sat like three seats in front of me. <laughs> And uh, nobody seemed to know it was her because she was completely different, obviously, off screen. And I remember going into Coronation Street one day and she she got off the train and I got off the train at Salford and she's walking down the street. I'm walking behind her. She, if she'd looked around, she'd have thought she had a stalker, you know. And I was going, in, going into the studio. She was going in and I was following her into the studios off the train. Um... But, yeah, because she but, lived she lived in Southport, of course, didn't she? So she'd get the train backwards and forwards to you know. I, I Madge Hind, we interviewed Madge Hindle, and Madge was Madge, Madge said you know her day was very very routine. Jean Alexander, she would get the same train every day and the same train back, and she's very annoyed if she missed the train, the later one, and all that kind of thing. You know, she was very you know it was all very much in order. You know what I mean? It was. Uh, I can I can imagine the the thing I remember about. Uh, Jean was I didn't I don't think I spoke to her she seemed to keep to herself in the dressing room especially when snooker was on um, she was a massive snooker fan and she'd spend hours watching the snooker when she wasn't doing rehearsing or doing the you know in the studio so I always thought that was uh, funny you know that uh, Ilda Ogden watching snooker <laughs> but uh, she was one of the greats as well absolutely yeah there, there have been some, haven't there, over the years, some fantastic actors. There have, definitely, definitely. So your first part was, um, as you say, sort of um, sort of selling that uh, new, yeah. um, what was it, um, what do you call it? Uh, well, modern, modern sort of shelving units in place of the uh, sideboard. Of the sideboard. So that was your first um, sort of encounter. Uh, but that was the first of, of 11. So take us through. Can you tell us your... Uh, your, your, um, your, well, your top 11, as it were, of <laughs> Coronation Street hits. <laughs> da, 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 da. Um, I think, it's, it's hard to remember going back, I think the second one I played was a, a gas man who uh, actually cut off Baldwin's casuals. Uh, Mike Baldwin, I think he'd got in a bit of trouble and um, he couldn't pay his bills for some reason. Um, and I played a gas man who, who came along to uh, shut the gas off at Baldwin's, Baldwin's Casuals and got accosted in the street by Percy Sugden. You can't do that, you know, you, you, what are you playing at? You can't do that. Oh, yes, I can, you know, so was the job's worth and he was uh, Percy sticking his neb in as usual. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I think that was only like one episode, um, cutting, off, <laughs> cutting off Baldwin's gas, yeah. Now he he'd been around a long time, Bill Waddington, hadn't he? As an actor, he'd he'd done all sorts of things over the years, but I think he was, I think he was sort of brought in to sort of be the old grump in 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 place of of uh, of Uncle Albert, wasn't he? In a way, don't you think? I think he was. Yeah, he he was the eternal busybody who was always moaning about this, that, and the other, and he he did it well, uh, <laughs> talking about you know. Um, cooking on cooking for the troops under shells and God knows what and what did he say? He said you 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 you, you don't know what it's like to to cook unless you've been uh, fired on or on the on, on the shell fire or something like that. But 
Yeah, he, he he was great, Percy. I read his life story a, a few weeks ago. He was uh, he was he was very well known um, variety act, like Betty yeah. Driver uh, was in, in her time. Uh, Bill Waddington. He was called um, Witty Willie, the Lancashire lad, and he used to come on stage with a, a pig under his arm for some reason. I don't know what that was about, but it might be worth seeing if there's anything online about it. And of course, on on. Um... On the show, of course, he he had this great double act with um, with with the lady who played Phyllis Pierce, didn't he? I mean, she was fantastic, you know. And she was she was he, he another. She's another one of those characters, isn't she? You know, you you, you recognise that there are, there are lots of Phyllis Pierces out there, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, with the blue rinse. Yeah, she she was she was wonderful. I got to speak to her. I don't think I did any scenes with her, but I got to speak to her because um, she just fascinated me, really. And I'd asked her if she worked with one of my heroes, Frank Randall, the uh, madcap Lancashire comedian, you know. And um, she she had. I said, well, what was he like? Because he had a reputation of being a hellraiser before any of the rock and roll stars where he'd smash dressing rooms up with an axe and uh, he'd go on stage drunk and throw his false teeth to the audience and stuff like that. And she said he was an absolute gentleman. Yeah. So that, that's the, yeah, that, that amazed me. But, uh, yeah, it, it was it's nice. It was nice at the time chatting to people in the green room, people you'd seen on the telly, and uh, it was lovely to have a word with her, yeah. So you... T- you 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 cut the gas off. You think at uh, at Baldwin's Casuals, um, yeah, and obviously Percy wasn't happy. Did you have to have an encounter with Mike at all or anything like that? Thankfully, no. I don't think I would have come out very well from that one. But uh, he wasn't about, so I must have chosen my moment. <laughs> but uh, it was bad. It was bad. Percy's bad enough, you know. You know, you know what Mike as well, you know. Absolutely. So tell us about some of the other parts then. Can you remember some of the other parts you had? Well, I, don't, I don't know if I'm in chronological order, but um, after that, I think I played an insurance assessor who went to uh, Kevin and Sally Webster's house after Kevin's dad, Bill, accidentally set fire to the kitchen. So I went along and um, trying to help them out um, doing the assessment and getting them some money for the, uh, for the damage. So that that was just, uh, just I think that was just a one off. So all, always very welcome, whatever you you know what I mean. Absolutely. Do, do they have to? Um, obviously, there's that many episodes now, so many episodes. Mm. But do they have to um, think continuity wise with some of these things in the sense that if if it's been if it you know they can't have you coming back as somebody else too quickly, can they? Because you know you'd be recognised, wouldn't you? basically. So does there have to be a bit of a gap between these things? Well, <laughs> I don't think I don't think they consciously think about it because I've done stuff like 18 months in between being one character and then coming in as another, um, completely different. So it must be my acting skills, that's all I can put it down to. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's good. I mean, there's been, there's been a gap of many years before I've come back into the street. So... Uh, it's it's just uh, as as it is you, you know it's there's no set rules to it i don't think but um i'm trying to think what happened after that there's a gas man and then i think i came in as a photographer with the uh, weatherfield gazette 
that was that was quite a big part. Um, we came in as uh, the, I had a sidekick, uh, a reporter called Duncan Stott, who was played by Ian Kershaw, who now has written for the street and he's written some brilliant stuff for radio and television. Um, but we, I played Harry Benson, the Weatherfield Gazette photographer. He was Duncan Stott. And we were brought in because Les Battersby got wind that uh, Roy and Haley were getting married. And he, he tipped the papers off that um, she was transgender. And he thought this would make a salacious story for the press. So, and, and that he'd get a few bob for uh, tipping us off. So we went in the Rovers and um, had a face-to-face -face with him over the money. I, I'm trying to think back all about it, but yeah, it was something. I'm just, I'm just, was, I'm, I'm just looking it up for you now. Um, right. I've just looked up Ian Kershaw up and um, he... Um, He's had he's had five roles on Coronation Street. So he's not uh, wow. not quite your record, but he's he's had five roles. He he was Solicitor Howard Curtis in September ninety five and January ninety six, and then uh, he was Weatherfield Gazette reporter Malcolm Bradford in January March nineteen ninety eight. Um, the role was portrayed by actor Derek Hicks upon the character's return in November of the same year. So. Obviously, it's changed. And then and then he was Gazette reporter Duncan Stott, <laughs> you mentioned. In, that was in April 1999. So that's uh, that's 21 years ago you were doing that. Um, wow. And then he was later on, he was journalist Mick Cockrompton in May 2001. And Ian Thompson, again a reporter in August 2001. So he obviously must look like a reporter. Um, in, in, but of course, he went on to uh, marry Julie Hesmondelsch, didn't he? He's basically Julie's well, partner. Well, the fu the funny thing is, we spoiled the wedding of Haley and Roy because we chased them all around town. We went to see the, the vicar, first of all, who was a lady, and um, she, I think she denied all knowledge of it, but they, they had to put it off because we were on to them. So we chased them all around town and spoiled the wedding, basically, which is ironic, isn't it, when you think, Ian ended up marrying Julie, and uh, yeah, it was it was, it was uh, they had to get married somewhere else. I can't remember wh where it was, but we uh, yeah we 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 uh, we actually ruined their wedding, which I, I find that funny, really, considering they got married and we they uh, they throw parties now and again, and I've been to a few at their house in uh, in Derbyshire. It's Lovely, lovely couple. So that was a big part, wasn't it? Were you in for a few a few weeks on that then, or a few days, or what was the... I think I was in for a few episodes on that, and then they brought Harry Benson and um, and Duncan, uh, Ian, back uh, for another go when there was a protest being held about the on the Red Wreck, the famous Red Wreck, and Spider was involved. Who you've Martin to, Hancock, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I listened to the podcast it was, uh, that you did with it. It was great. Um, so Spider was involved with Toya Battersby. I think he was up a tree or something. And Harry Benson, the uh, Weatherfield Gazette photographer who I, who I played, he actually chained, <laughs> persuaded Toya to be chained to a tree while he took pictures of her. So, can you imagine that? 
So he, he's chaining Toya to a tree, and uh, Duncan says, "Well, are these for the uh, for for the Gazette?" Uh, Harry I said, "No, for the lads in in the dark room." So it was <laughs> that was a bit of a you know um, salacious episode. It's funny you should say it's funny you should say that because I started my life as a newspaper reporter and i won't mention any specific names well i did as well did you all right well i i started a newspaper reporter and i i don't know about you but i always had we always had a couple of photographers who were linked to the our stories and we'd have to go out and do vox pop so we'd have to go out and 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 the photographers were a bloody nightmare because all they really wanted to do was was photograph attractive women you know what i mean that was all they ever wanted to do you know so well i i, I started off as a reporter on uh, the lee chronicle uh, which later became the Lee Reporter, and we were one of the first papers in the country to put um, scantily dressed ladies on. And this is a local newspaper, a local weekly. We put scantily dressed local girls on the on the front page. Yeah, I was a reporter. Went on to work on the Blackpool Gazette and then the Manchester Evening News for two years. The, those days of you know, it was I don't know. We we, we the papers I was on were were weekly, and um, and we always had. I mean. I, I worked for a, there were several papers in the area, in the country, the I was in it was Doncaster in South Yorkshire, um, and we all we all competed, everyone, it was a really competitive sort of, you know, marketplace in, in many ways, but there were very few of us doing it at that particular point in the 90s, because they, they cut back and cut back and cut back and cut back, but yeah. I do remember working with some real characters, you know, there was one guy that had been um, a big journalist at the Daily Express in Manchester for many years, and you know, you, you, I learned loads of interesting things from these people. Fantastic. The only thing I would say is most of the time, um, several of them were the old ones were just pissed all the time. Really, they just all they do is get drunk. You know, like, <laughs> but that's where they got their stories, wasn't it? In the pub, you know. Exactly the same for me. I mean, there's a guy came working for us who'd been all over on the dailies and everything, and uh, he dragged us in the pub. He was like the news editor. He dragged us in the pub at the any excuse you know we were, we were more often in the pub than in the office but it was great fun it was really great fun i enjoyed those years on the uh, on the local newspaper we got but you've never to... but you've never got a chance to play a newspaper reporter in coronation street you photographer but not a newspaper reporter well I probably couldn't get in for ian kershaw <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah photographer seems... yeah i played a photographer uh, several times so uh, yeah Ian's Ian's nailed the reporter. He must look like a reporter. He's he's a yeah he's a, yeah I can see how he's he's a good looking guy. He looks a bit suave. Yeah, I can see probably they they see him as the reporter, don't they? Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah but bear in mind we were the reporters and we don't really look that suave, do we? You know what I mean? So no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's not reality after all. <laughs> do you want a cup of tea? I'll have half a cup. And that caught on, yeah, that became a kind of catchphrase, I think. It was the hilarious film of 1999. It wasn't anything to do with race or religion or creed or colour. It was as simple as an art student who thinks he's all free and easy creating a model of a vagina and showing it to his mum and thinking that that's going to be okay. East is East by Ayub Khan Din broke new ground by portraying a relationship between a British woman and her Asian husband and their mixed-race family growing up in Salford in the early 1970s. A clash of cultures and generations ensues. Oh, frig off and wash your bastard curtains, you dirty cow. 
And I swear to God, that's one of the best lines I've ever had to say in my life. But the film had a serious side too, tackling both racism and domestic violence. I threw myself and put all my physical strength into trying to stop him, and I couldn't. In Helsinki, they were saying, I can't believe you've made this film. It's incredible because it's showing what life is like for us now. A series of special interviews with Linda Bassett, Leslie Nickel and Chris Bisson. It was a great script and it was a timely thing to tell because it hadn't been told before. They've done all sorts of incredible things to transport you back in time to give you an authentic feel of what it was like. This series of special interviews is available now at distinctnostalgia.com. Only on Distinct Nostalgia. When I ran out of children's books, I used to read from Woman's Own. Who knew a four-year-old would be gripped by an article on cross-stitch? We're uniting the ages with Generation Games, a series of comedy and drama monologues and duologues coming exclusively to Distinct Nostalgia. Stories exploring connections, friendships and relationships between people across different age groups, beginning with Missing You, starring June Brown and Sam Barnard. Mum thinks I need protecting, but I don't need protecting from love. Pity that social worker of his can't do something useful for a change. Contact the noise abatement lot. Put in a complaint. I like her, I said, and then... Silence. What's the problem? I asked. Still take advantage of you, Mum warned. Missing You by Richard Verjet with the legendary June Brown only on Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. So yeah, go carry on then with your Coronation Street uh, top 11. <laughs> well, I came back a couple of times as a Photographer, photographer one, um, didn't have a name after that for some reason. I was Harry Benson and then I came back as a photographer. Uh, what was that for? Oh, yeah, I took a picture of um, Jack and Vera who won some big check. Uh, oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. They had a massive check uh, for the picture purposes, so I took a picture of them. And then I came back later to photograph, I think it was Curly Watts who was standing for local council. Um, so I took some pictures of him in the middle of the street. I can't remember much about those. They weren't, um, you know, they weren't big parts or anything, but they were speaking parts. And so fair enough, always grateful. And then I got a cracking part as Jack Duckworth's mate. He was a guy called Bert Latham. And it was a part I really enjoyed. I, he was a bit crazy. Um, he had a dog called Boomer which was a massive mongrel, which had to, it was from the northeast, a Geordie, a Geordie mongrel. And it was a massive dog. I had to sort of handle it myself. And he sold it to Jack in the Rovers because Jack hadn't brought Vera a Christmas present. So it was last minute. So um, Bert sold Jack this dog called Boomer. And to put it bluntly, it terrorised, it terrorised them. Um, chased them up the stairs, ate the turkey, and actually, she thought it was great having a dog, you know. He thought thought he was being very thoughtful, but he, it was like a last-minute thing. Um, and it, it, they wouldn't, wouldn't let, let them down the stairs for Christmas. 
So uh, it was it was like that. And Jack found out that the reason it was called Boomer, it went missing one day. It was called Boomer, which was short for Boomerang because it went back to Bert every every time he sold it. He'd sold it quite a lot, but it always returned to him. So it was Boomer short for Boomerang, which I thought was, that was a good move. And then Bert came back um, as Jack's mate again because apparently a, a fox had been snaffling Jack's pigeons. So Jack called Bert in. This is one of the more surreal things I did in Corrie. He brought Bert in with his dog, Boomer, <laughs> um, to have a fox hunt in Coronation Street, which we did. And it was filmed one real cold, I think it was February, it was like two o'clock in the morning. And we uh, we had this fox hunt with uh, with Boomer, so we were chasing this fox fox down the back streets, round the uh, waking everybody up. Kevin Webster came out bawling at us, and Percy stood on the corner of the street with um, Reg. It's that Burmy, it's that Burmy mate of uh, Jack's. They're having a fox hunt, so I'm going up. Well, have you seen it? Have you seen it? And. <laughs> Bill Waddington, he had to say, ludicrous line, go and hunt foxes in your own street. And he couldn't get it out because I had a twinkle in my eye because I knew what a silly line it was, you know. You're not from round here, go and hunt foxes in your own street. And he looked at me and he cracked up and I cracked up and he couldn't get the line out. He couldn't get the line out. He tried several times and... um the director, you know, said, come on, Bill, get it, get it. And he's going, it's not me, it's him, it's him, pointing at me. Anyway, we eventually uh, got the hunt underway again and it ended up, the fox ended up in Derek and Mavis's garden. And she was outside, <laughs> she was outside banging a, a saucepan with a spoon, trying to frighten it away because she'd heard that these naughty men, there was me, Jack and Curly, who were all drunk, uh, chasing chasing this poor fox and she was saying like go away poor hunted creature go away um, so it was cornered in her garden and I was attempting to climb over the um, climb over the fence and she said you're not getting your leg over here something like that and I said something like well that's that's not the first time you've said that love <laughs> so I'm just getting my leg over the fence and she banged me on the head with a saucepan <laughs> I saw uh, Tweety Birds and uh, Blue Lights, and, and that was that. And that's a bit that's a bit violent for Mavis, isn't it? Well, it was actually. Yeah, I think that's pr probably the only time she's hit somebody, and it happened to be me with a with a saucepan. <laughs> Funny thing is, we we moved up to near the Lake District, and she was. Um, we went into a place called Ostwick one day because there was the uh, the village fair was on, and she was sat there uh, signing autographs because she lived. Round Giggleswick Way, I think, which or, or somewhere up there, anyway. And uh, she remembered the episode and hitting me over the head with the saucepan and that. And she said it, it had just been shown on on television on some awards ceremony. I can't remember what it was, but it was uh, yeah. That that was a good part. I enjoyed doing that. And well, um, Mavis was supposed to supposed to have left to go and live in live up in Cumbria, wasn't she? Supposedly in the in the show. The idea is that Mavis left to go and live in. 
Cartmel or somewhere, if I remember rightly. That it, was the place. It was a doctor's in... Was it a doctor's in Cartmel or something? Or was that Hilda? That Rose? was Hilda, was the doctor's in Derbyshire, wasn't it? Yeah, that's oh, right, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, it's, it's it's funny. So did you get to... Uh, did you get to know... Um, you hinted earlier on that you'd... That you might have seen them earlier on when they were when the extra side of things, but did you did you know or get to know um, Liz Dawn and Bill Tarmy? Yeah, um, with working working with them, yeah. Um, for some reason, when I was doing that Bert Latham, we'd, we'd go in the bar, the uh, Stables Bar, it was there, and uh, sat with, drinking with her. And for some reason, she called me Bob. I'd, I've never i never found out why she called me Bob, but she was like that. And then. Strangely enough, about five years ago, me and my wife were on a cruise and uh, it was Mediterranean cruise and we we're walking through the ship and we said, well, come on, we'll go in this bar and have a drink. And who should be there but Liz Dawn and her husband. And uh, I just introduced myself saying, you know, you won't remember me, but we did some scenes together in Corinth. Oh, come and sit down. Come and have a drink, love. She, she was brilliant. So we sat down, we chatted for about three hours. And then she said, we'll have to meet up again. So we met up every night after that. We we uh, went down for dinner together. She was in a wheelchair by then and uh, in a bit of a sad state. She had bruises on her because she, she was on steroids due to a chest uh, condition. But the people absolutely loved her. And I'd push her through and her husband would push her through to the, uh, to the restaurants and she'd be stopped all the way along saying, oh, we miss you, you know. We kind of a photo taken with you and all that, and and she said, "Isn't it nice? People still remember." And uh, she she was absolutely lovely, and she loved the fans. She absolutely loved the fans. And sitting with her at the uh, dinner table, it was an absolute scream. She was telling me stuff about what had happened to her, you know, Prince Charles's visit and stuff like that. Um, what did he say to her? She she said something like. Um, Oh, um, she was in the hospital bed and something about putting her tights on. She says, having a cigarette. Uh, I always have a, I always have a puff before, uh, before I put my tights on. He's, and Prince Charles said, "Does it help them? Does it help them to go up or something like that?" It was, but she was, she was telling funny stories at the uh, at the dining table when she met the Pope and she'd taken this old. Um, statue of Saint Jude and it was all manky and it had no hands and she said. The Pope looked at her and they looked at this statue in disbelief. And oh, and the time she uh, she met Princess Diana, she knelt down in front of her, you know, curtsied, but couldn't get up again and Diana had to help her up. So it was it was great to meet up with her, yeah. And of course, um, just thinking about her before Jack came, because Jack came later, he came after Vera, didn't he, in terms of the show, because uh, she was in the factory. And, and of course, she was the sidekick to... Um, to Ivy, Lynn Perry's character. Did you, Lynn would have been still in it in some of the period you were, did you ever come across Lynn Perry? Just briefly, when I, I think it was, yeah, the first time I bumped into her was when I was a guest at Eddie's wedding, yeah, and she was uh, sat in the pew, so I had a chat with her. Um, nothing, you know, nothing much that I can remember. Apart from she had a doll with her for some reason and pretended to be breastfeeding it. Just for, <laughs> okay. just for a laugh, you, you know what I mean? That was... <laughs> She was a character on and on and off screen, I think, uh, Lynn Perry, from what I could, well, from what I told you. Well, like uh, Liz Dawn, uh, Lynn Perry had done the clubs and and uh, Bill Tarney, they were 
there were big names in the in the working men's clubs and really good acts as well. The woman who played Ida Ida Clough was also in the working men's clubs as well, wasn't she? If I remember rightly, you know Ida in the in the factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember remember Ida. Yeah, she bobbed in and out, didn't she? Yeah, exactly. She was just a bit part, but every now you see her there every now and again, wasn't she? Um, so it sounds though like you had some fantastic fun o- o- over the years, and um, we'll bring it up to date in a moment because you've been in Corrie recently, but. Are there any other moments, just just while we're, while we're talking about it, any other things that you, that stand out over the years, things you remember, stories you remember that were are interesting to convey? Um, I did an episode, well, a few episodes. There's a guy called um, Cliff. I don't I don't think he had a surname. I'm not sure, but he was a neighbour of um, Mrs. Fishwick, um, Doreen uh, Mantle, who played her. She was murdered by Colin Stape and uh, Cliff lived next door to her and Stape came nosing along because he'd left some evidence at the scene and he was going to break in and clear it up and then Cliff came out and he spotted him and uh, entered into a conversation and he was trying to get away from Cliff, the nosy neighbour and Cliff looked through the window and saw that Mrs uh, Fishwick wasn't moving. So he broke the door down and he did a, a karate, <laughs> he was a pensioner who did a karate kick called a Yoko Gari. So he, I, burst the, I burst the door in with this flying kick and dragged Stape in and we looked and uh, I felt a pulse and um, told him, you know, she's dead. Well, he knew that because he murdered her. And uh, I dialed 999. Um, that was it. But that was with, uh, you mentioned Doreen Mantle, of course, Doreen Mantle, better known as Mrs. Warboys in One Foot in the Grave, and who I yeah. interviewed recently. Fantastic actress. I mean, really, really wonderful woman. I, I, I heard it, yeah. And she was born in South Africa, wasn't she? I think she? so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have a chance to talk to her a little bit while you were on set? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a chat with her and uh, I was in the back of the car with her, uh, going back to the studio, which was a bit reminiscent of uh, One Foot in the Grey. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, she was lovely. I think she said she worked with Sid James, who was also South African, strangely. Um, I think she said she worked in theatre with him. I'm, I'm not entirely sure about that, but I had a, a chat with her. She She's a... a Delight, wasn't she? Yeah, that sort of broadened out that part to Chesney came round. He was trying to find some information out about Snape. He was he was trying to break into the house, I think. So I caught him and he asked me if I'd seen this guy and he showed me a picture of him and it turned out to be John Stape. So I identified him as the killer off the picture on Chesney's phone. That was a very bizarre story, though, wasn't it? All of that. I found that all very bizarre, that... That um, Snape story, I find it, you know, really odd. Just he well, <laughs> felt, felt a bit, it just felt a bit surreal, really. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's that's the way Corrie has gone. There's been a lot of surreal moments in in uh, in, in Corrie, really. Um, Emmerdale had a spell of that because I, I played a guy called Mister Skip, and I think it was in about five episodes. They had a real spell of surreal um, episodes. I, I played a, a guy called Mister Skip who suddenly appeared from nowhere, and he was a, a UFO spotter, flying saucer spotter, and he used to go around the village at night with these binoculars, and they thought he was a flasher. And he he, he got beaten up by the barmaid's uh, boyfriend. Anyway, turns out he was, uh, he was looking for flying saucers, <laughs> and he was going to do a talk 
at the village hall about flying saucers when they realised he was pretty harmless but uh, eccentric. Until finally, he, he uh, after a few episodes, he, he disappeared into thin air, and and the inf and all that was left was a shoe in his uh, in his room. Uh, and the inference was that he'd been abducted by flying saucers. So, you know, you can't beat a streak of surrealism now and again. But I get what you're saying about state. Yeah, it was. Uh, he couldn't stop murdering, and ever since then, there's been a quite a few, <laughs> quite a few the same. <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's, it's it's really strange, isn't it? And, and to bring things bang up to date, you were in it again recently, weren't you? And and your role really was to reveal that uh, that that Peter Barlow had started drinking again. Yeah, I did have another role before that. I played a uh, Simon's teacher called Les Rawlins, uh, Leslie Rawlins, who was a Civil War reenactor. And Peter Barlow, Chris Gascoigne, came around to uh, Rawlins's house because he'd confiscated Simon's phone and he was dressed in all the Civil War gear. You know, he had these boots on up to his groin, these big brown boots, and uh, he wanted to get the phone back off him and he wasn't, Rawlins wasn't forgiving it back to him. I remember that. I remember that. It's not not that long ago, is it, actually? That's what I'm saying. D d the, the director, David Kester, who I'd worked with, asked, asked uh, especially for me to do it for for some reason, he must have seen me in Civil War boots or something. Um, he actually got me a part in Emmerdale as well when I packed in, I packed in the business, and uh, he, he's sort of responsible in a very nice way for getting me back in into uh, television again. Uh, played a prison officer in Emmerdale. Peter Barlow should have recognised you, really, shouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I'm sorry, I've, I've missed one out as well. Um, way before that, I played. Um, I worked with him again. I played um, Shelley's Uncle Gerald. He was marrying Shelley, you know, um, who was the landlady of the Rovers at the time. And he was marrying her, but he was a bigamist. So we did scenes, a lot of scenes together in the church, uh, in the pub, that sort of thing. So that was, I don't know, oh, early 90s or something like that. So that was uh, Gerald Unwin, Shelley's uncle. And then, yeah, worked with him again <laughs> a few weeks ago and when he'd been mugged and I came along as a passerby by the name of Barry. You make a good Barry. Thank you. Make you. a good Barry. You look like a Barry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, he, yeah, he was in a bad way. He was on the, um, next to a set of, uh, a fire escape and bleeding from his mouth and so I said you know what's what's up and he told me he'd been mugged so I phoned the police for him cut a long story short and then thinking I was doing him a good turn I, I brought a hip flask out with me which uh, I had a crafty snorter from and um, I chucked it to him while I was phoning the police not knowing of course that he had a drink problem a massive one so when I came back I was uh, shouting this, um, wishing him good health with this flask. Turned it upside down, he'd emptied it. He'd sucked all the uh, the Irish whiskey that was in it. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm afraid. And then I went into the Rovers and he didn't want anybody to know, but I gave the game away to uh, Abby that uh, he'd emptied the flask of, of the whiskey. And he, he was trying to keep it quiet, but... I'm afraid I've set him on the road to perdition again, and uh, it's my fault that he's 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 back supping. 
So uh, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. I think it, it uh, presumably, Chris, presumably Chris Gascoigne recognised you because he's worked with you several times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I love working with him. We we get on really well because we come from a similar working class background and we we swap stories about it. And uh, he has some fantastic stories about his granddad. And yeah, he he said he he remembered. Oh yeah, you were Gerald, weren't you? He remembered the the year, the the time, what we did, everything, and. Stuff before that, yeah, he, he, yeah, we 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 get on really well. I, I like working with him. Distinct comedy, fresh and original. Get kettle on Dotty and thriping. Have you heard about her at number thirty-eight? This is right, Emma. Yeah, she's only gone and got herself an op tub. Meet Florian Dotty by Janice Fryett. Two northern lasses who love a good goss. She's invited us round to help her christen it. You might need to trim your lady garden a bit. And they'll have a sideswipe at anything, from the neighbours and social issues to sexuality and social media. Gypsy queen? No, thanks, Satan. I'm on a health kick. Well, you don't look very healthy right now. You've got a funny colour. A distinct comedy presentation, only on Distinct Nostalgia. It'll be just like Love Island. Love Island? Are you kidding? Lesbian Love Island, more like if it's just us three. Listen by scrolling through the Distinct Nostalgia feed. Dear Miss Jones, may I call you Clementina? Firstly, may I say how nice it was to meet you in the park yesterday. Distinct Comedy presents Letters from one Border Terrier pup to another. Apparently, socks that cannot accommodate toes because they have large holes where said toes should be fail to fulfil any real purpose. Based on true events seen through canine eyes. I now know that I'm definitely afraid of both heights and, not surprisingly, of big ladies. Dear Clementina, search for Distinct Comedy wherever you get your podcasts. Sincerely yours, Stanley Burke. Woof! As well as amazing TV and film nostalgia, this podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz, where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo is all I can remember about. Yeah, well, that yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that. The fifth season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you. Prisoner cell block. Cell block B. Prisoner cell block H. Simply choose your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh, whistle down the wind, carry on up the Khyber. Um, no, this is rubbish, I'm sorry. No, I don't <laughs> know. Uh, they're not bad attempts, actually. <laughs> and the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Mind of the Month quiz. What kind of programme was The Smoking Room? Oh, I've never heard of it. I don't know oh. if I can accept that. That's a cracker, isn't it? They uh, always are. <laughs> Only here. Over the years, things have changed, obviously, in Coronation Street in terms of the way they film things. There are obviously more episodes now. There's not rehearsal time, really. You've got to just get on with it and all that kind of thing. Just reflect a bit on that and how that's changed and how much... You know, how much are you told in advance about your character? Okay, I know your characters are, you know, a, a small parts or whatever, only there for a period of time. But you presumably have to know a bit about it before you go in. And obviously you see the scripts and whatever. But 
you know, how much can you put into it? You know, take us back from the... Have things altered over the years in that sense? Well, it, obviously, it was a slower pace when I got my first role in Corrie because there were, it was only two episodes a week and your bags of time to rehearse. I think it was like Monday and Tuesday you'd rehearse the scenes and then Wednesday you'd have the tech run through when the producers and the crew... It would be in a big room with all the uh, stuff marked out, the moves marked out with gaffer tape and stuff like that. That was a bit nerve-wracking for a, a rookie because the producer had come down, the directors, everybody, all the big wigs would be there watching everything you did. So that was the tech run. Then I think they did it Thursday and Friday, Saturday off, was it? And, and then location on Sunday, something like that. Now it's completely different and it's amazing that they get six episodes a week. You get some indication of what your character's like um, in the script. You go down, um, you learn the lines, you go down. And more often than not, the first time you rehearse it is actually on the set. Right? The director will say, right, we'll have a run through. Do this, do that. We run through the lines. Hopefully you remember the lines. And then... The director gives you your marks. I don't mean out of 10. I mean where you stand, where you look and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's basically, you, you can put a bit in because it's not been, um, it's not been as finely honed as it was like 20, 35 years ago. But the scope for, um, the scope for a bit of ad-libbing, well, not ad-libbing. Um, for instance, when... Me as Barry was leaving the Rovers, Chris Gascoigne said, look, pretend, pretend to go in the bog. He, he was looking for the, the trams and Abby gives him the direction. He said, look, pretend to go in the bog. You know, you've lost your way. So this was on the set just before we filmed it. I said, ah, OK. So we did a quick run through and Barry goes into the bog instead of the way out. And uh, Abby says, that's the bog, Barry. Not there, that's the bog, Barry. And... So you can you can put a bit of uh, bit of your own self into it, a bit of ad libbing. I think with the scene with the the flask, I turned it upside down and said, "Hey, up," you know. So uh, yeah, there is scope. Uh, but what I'd like to say is, I find it amazing, totally amazing, with the work that the actors have to do in six episodes that they get it done. They remember the lines. They're in all the time. I mean. Somebody like Jane Danson, who's had a massive part as Leanne, and a very emotional one. How how she got through that, and and you know, um, Gregson, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing that they remember the lines, they do all the acting, and then go back and learn the lines in the next day. On the the stress they must be under is is phenomenal, but very professional people who deserve every penny that they get. Yeah, I mean, soap is often... I mean, I hate, I hate calling them soaps, actually, because when I was a little boy, it was called a drama serial. It's only in recent times that everyone calls everything soaps. And I think sometimes using that term makes people think they're lesser than other things, you know what I mean? But when the drama serials, Corrie, Emmerdale, EastEnders, all of them, when they're at their best, they're at their best, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, when when shows have run for so many years, they can't be the best all the time. But when they are really, really good, it's often the best acting there is, isn't it? Well, they can move you to tears like Hildur, you know, 
looking at Sam, uh, Stan's glasses and, and it, every time you see that, it breaks you up. Or when she does the bit, um, what's your lipstick taste of? Woman, Stanley, woman. Makes you laugh. I mean, you've just said it yourself. It, 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 the best bits, they can, they can go from bathos, pathos to humour, having you, you know, crying with laughter at some of the things they get up to and, and having you crying with some of the emotive stuff. So it's, I, I agree with you. I mean, they call it, what do they call it? Continuing drama these days instead of soaps. But you get people saying, oh, uh, I don't watch it. You know, I've never watched it for 50 years or whatever, but they can tell you everything that's happened recently. <laughs> Guilty pleasure. I only, I only watched it when Ina Sharples was in it, but they know they know who the latest hitman is. They know, uh, you know, who's going through what. Exactly. Guilty pleasure, isn't it? It's a guilty pleasure. They, 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 yeah, because they, at the end of the day, the, 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 you know, all those programs are still doing very well in terms of viewing figures. You know, okay, you know, nobody's watching as much as they used to, although I think people watch stuff on catch up and stuff anyway. So, and often they don't add those figures on for, for a while until they know what they are. But you know, people are still still uh, watching things, and and they are the great survivors. You know, other shows come and go. You know, your you Corries, your Emmerdales, your EastEnders stay, don't they? And they keep going. You know, so that's the way it is. You know, and I think um, I think they need a reward for that. Really, that they're the you know that they're, they're these that it, you know during this lockdown period, it's been quite nice to have things that are familiar that you know um, and that you know makes you feel comfortable and. That's what they are. They're a comfortable pair of slippers in a way, aren't they, in that sense? Definitely. And, and six decades, they must be doing something right. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's As you say, it's still a comfort to people who can't get out of the house because of COVID sometimes. Um, it's actually produced under now under strict COVID conditions. I mean, when I went in, there was a guy behind me with a, a two-metre stick, believe it or not. <laughs> he was using this to keep the actors apart <laughs> and uh, everything is oh you take your temperature before you go in you can't uh, nobody goes in the dressing room when you can't do your makeup your cost you you, you know her well not that i need to uh when you finish with your costume you hang it on the door outside everything's wiped down um it, it, it's amazing that they managed to get six episodes a week out under covid conditions and under any conditions basically and like I said, they deserve every penny and long may it continue. Just going back a second on, you mentioned, you were mentioning famous scenes with Hilda. The one I always liked was, um, another emotional one was where she realised, she found out that Stan had been stealing money or she, he'd been get, taking money from the tin that they were saving things for or whatever. And um, she go as a go at him about it in a, quite an emotional sense that, you know, basically... You know, God, I've I've got to scrimp and save and whatever, and it, it really is really. I mean, and you can see in Stan, he's get he's feeling he feels so guilty and, and sort of upset about himself, but he can't he, he's not able to convey it back, and that's just a really touching scene, you know, because obviously they didn't have to, you know, what's it to rub together, did they? You know what I mean? So, um, I just thought that was that was really nice, and there's been several quite a few scenes like that, and often it was it, in the past it was often it was scenes that didn't really. You know, often it was just scenes where people were chatting, wasn't it? And and that were the best ones, really. You know what I mean? It's it sort of... Um, whereas now, 
a lot of them, all the soaps really, spend a lot of time chasing issues for a start. There's always an issue that has to be dealt with somewhere on the lines. Or it's some action, isn't it? Some kind of, you know, um, horrible thing happening, a murder or a car crash or something happening. And I, you know, I wonder if that's going to go full circle eventually. I wonder if they'll get, the audiences will get to a point where they're a bit tired of that and they'll react to that and go back to, you know, the, but then again, do we communicate in that way anymore? Most of the time, everyone's just tapping away on blooming phones, aren't they? That's the problem. Well, I know, I know what you're saying about the issue-led stuff, but uh, and I think people really might like a return to dialogue, you know, a friendly, funny dialogue. Like uh, you see in classic Corrie, where they're having a chat about nothing in the street, and but but it's funny, and they're using sort of northern expressions and uh, taking the mickey out of one another, having the banter. I mean, I go in a few pubs that still do that, if, if they're going to be open after this lot, you know, after the... The lockdowns and stuff, but I go in pubs where you still get the banter, you still get the broad Lancashire talk. It's like you said about slipping into a pair of slippers, you know, comfortable slippers. I think people like that sort of thing. So perhaps, yeah, you, you might be right. You might um, there might be more funny scenes where people are just chatting and uh, inconsequential stuff, but funny. I don't, I don't have a problem with the issue stuff to an extent, but I just think sometimes I think to myself. It's like you look at a character and you think, I'm not just talking about Cory, I'm talking about all of them. You look at a character and you think, well, would they really do that? Would they, would, you know, because you, you, when you've been watching these characters for so many years, you know them in a, in a, in a, to an extent, don't you? And you think to yourself, no, such and such wouldn't do that. You know, it just doesn't fit for them. It really doesn't, you know what I mean? It's sort of, I know they can turn anybody to anything, but it's just, you know, you, you feel as though you want to believe it. And sometimes you don't, do you? You know, sometimes you think... This person wouldn't do that, you know what I mean? And to be fair, there are some great, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not being completely negative here. There's some fantastic episodes and I've watched it, you know, this Corrie this week, it's been brilliant. Obviously, you've been in Coronation Street a lot over many, many years. 11 parts. I think you've told told us most of them. We've gone through most of them. You'll probably forget, you'll probably remember a few after we've finished. But um, would you have liked to have had a, f- a regular part in Corrie? Yes, definitely. Um... It's been a lifelong ambition, to be honest, coming from that that sort of background, knowing the uh, you know knowing what they're on about, knowing what that coming from that landscape. I mean, as I say, we lived in a two up, two down cobbled street. Step out the back gate. There's a dirty great mill there where my man worked. Big cotton mill, smoky chimneys. I was like living in a lowery landscape um, when I was a kid. So I, I knew what it was about. I knew what Tony Warren's ethos was I knew the characters knew everything so I'd always had an anchoring to be an actor but coming from the sort of background I did I'd not a clue how to go about it until finally got the opportunity and um, and took it um, I'd done a wide variety of jobs but um, you're right I would have loved to have been a, a regular in Corrie or semi-regular purely because it's the best programme on television still. The best actors, you may very welcome when you you actually go into the studios there. It's a cliche now. It's one big family. It really is. And the people are, are absolutely brilliant. Um, it's, a, it's just a lovely thing to do. And, and it's, ama- uh, it's amazing, isn't it, that it's got to 60 years. I mean, 
that's a long, long time for anything to, to, to be running. And, you know, I think it'll go on for a lot longer and, you know, you know, hopefully it'll, you know, it'll outlive all of us to an extent because I think it's sort of, as long as it keeps evolving and keeps being relevant, I think it's um, got a place in, in, in Britain's life long term, don't you? Well, I, well, I hope so because I want to do some more. <laughs> <laughs> Not being greedy, but um, yeah, I think I think I think you're right. Um, I'll I'll not be here to see the centenary, uh, but I'm sure it it will take place, and uh, my grandchildren will be watching it and hopefully remembering me. You never know. You might be there for the centenary. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. People do live longer. What um, these days? I'm not. I'm not saying you're ancient. I'm just saying you know people live way beyond hundred in certain circumstances. What? Um, how does it compare then to doing a? St- how does a stint on Corrie compare to doing a stint in the Dales and the Woolpack and all the rest of it in Emmerdale? What's the difference as working on the two? Do you think? Well, it's fresher air up in there. <laughs> <laughs> Fresher air up in the Dales. It's a, it's an absolutely beautiful setup in the Dales. There's there's no doubt about it. I I, I love walking around the set and breathing in the fresh air. You see pheasants, you know. You see hawks. You see sheep. Everything. It's a it's a cracking set. But equally, I love walking around Coronation Street because it's like home. And when I did it this time, I hadn't I hadn't actually worked on the the new set. And it's massive. It is absolutely massive. I would love to have had more time to explore it and uh, sit in that little garden where everybody sits, you know, and eat me butties there. Um, that's what I. That's what I'd like to do, to uh, go back in Corrie uh, and eat me butties in that little community garden where where there's a memorial plaque. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. I've had mental health problems, I think, for most of my life. Suicide is sadly something which affects people from all backgrounds. My friends didn't quite understand why I was being the way I was being, so support was was pretty much non-existent. A brand new podcast brought to you by the Zero Suicide Alliance. I'm Professor Alice Roberts and this is Life Matters. Few people understand that you just actually just need to just sit and listen to what the person's saying. We do know that there are some people who tend to be more at risk than others. In our feature on the latest initiatives from around the world, we find out how three schoolgirls from Brazil have developed a suicide prevention app aimed at Generation Z. If something bad happened to me today, I'll go there and add a drop of water. We're with the team at Hollyoaks to hear how they've been showing how soap can inspire life-saving conversations among men at risk of suicide. I just feel absolutely nothing at all. Nothing, just dead. 
this way you get to see Darren's journey behind the scenes. He's really struggling and he doesn't know how to reach out. He doesn't know how to get help. You know, it's always been his taboo subject. Join me, Professor Alice Roberts, for the very first edition of Life Matters. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts and visit zerosuicidealliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives. Distinct Nostalgia is home to some fascinating conversations with the names behind some iconic films of the 20th century. And we've a special treasure trove of interviews and reunions around great British film. There's Brief Encounter. I was making my first film at the age of 19 and so was playing Beryl, the young girl serving the teas in the refreshment room. I'm the last surviving member of this, and I suppose I'm getting rather elderly. Plus, Brassed Off. We didn't know that brass band music was going to be that popular. It just became a real word of mouth, people's film. It stayed in the top ten in London for nearly three or four months, I think. And we eventually had to go up and ask them to stop showing it in Leeds because it was going to ruin the, uh, the video launch date. And Oliver. The phone went and my mum shouted up saying, oh, you got the part of Oliver. And I remember being, because I was eight at the time, thinking, great, I'm going to have like six months off school. And that's all I thought. I didn't think anything else of it. Distinct Nostalgia. Celebrating great British movies. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or browse our existing programmes at distinctnostalgia.com. Obviously, you did, you did Emmerdale five times. You've done quite a lot on Heartbeat, haven't you? You did quite a few things on Heartbeat. Yeah. Um, you done, have you done some of the, some of the uh, hospital ones as well? Have you done Holby City and things like that? No, not done Holby City, although I did a... I got a good part in one called Always and Everyone, where I was a prison officer. I played a prison officer a couple of times. I can't, I can't think why. Um, ended up chaining a scouser to a radiator. Uh, <laughs> So chaining somebody else, um, yeah, that was um, that was the only. I think that was the only hospital thing I did. But in the eighties, uh, I got a part in an award-winning sitcom at Granada called Watching, which was oh yeah, I remember was, it. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, the agent said one day, "Do you want to go and do this pilot?" Uh, There's only a couple of lines. I said, "Yeah, I'll go and do it." So I played a, a guy who had a cafe. He was called Oswald. He didn't have a name at first. He was just the cafe, the cafe guy. And the line I had was, um, they asked for coffees or biscuits or whatever. And I used to say, I'll bring them over. And it, 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 they must have seen a spark there because they wrote me into it. And it did, I think it did about 11 series, something like that. And I got um, quite a few episodes and it built the part up. And it, it was a joy to do. And... It won awards, the uh, the sitcom. And there's a, a Facebook group called the Mel's Mackerels who absolute fanatics for it. They absolutely love it. They go out on location looking for <laughs> where it was filmed. They know everything about it. There's about nearly a 1,000 uh, members in the group. So it's still remembered and loved. And they want to see it back on telly repeated. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was... Because it's never been it's never been repeated, has it? I don't think. I think it was repeated on gold a few years ago, so you know it, it could still be repeated. And I think 
it was so funny. I think everybody would still enjoy it today. And so your character had a sort of a, a standard sort of catchphrase that he'd always say, something he'd always say, did he? Kind of... Yeah, well, they, they built it up. Yeah. I'll bring it over. So yeah. they, had, they used to wear a mucky pinny and uh, flick his fag ash in the stew and stuff like that. <laughs> and then he tried to uh, dress it up as a French restaurant and he'd pop up in the most unusual places like Martin Mayer Bird Sanctuary, pop up behind the counter there. It was a cracking series, really funny. Um, yeah. It was um, it was still loved, you know, stuff like that. So I, I enjoyed doing that. I was lucky enough to do about 11, 12, 13 episodes. That's great. That's great. I mean, I, it's funny, isn't it? Because char- um, I just think, I just think, comedy-wise, there's a there's a dearth of, um, of of really good observational comedy today. There's hardly anything. You just you just reminded me. You telling me about the you in the cafe and you know bring it over and all that kind of stuff. When when I used to. Um, when I was a young lad, we used to go uh, out for nights out in, in Wakefield because I lived between Wakefield and Doncaster and we'd come back at night time, whatever. And there was like a little motel cafe place that was open 24 hours a day and it was mainly for the truckers and people like that, generally. Yeah. But you'd go, you'd pop in and um, there was this woman behind the counter who must, it felt as though she worked there 24 hours a day and everyone just went in for a bacon butty net, generally. And she just, every five seconds, it'd be, Bacon butty <laughs> and another bacon butty. It's like that all the time. <laughs> well, that's a cracking catchphrase, isn't it? Yeah, right? yeah. You, 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 it's that kind of observation you don't see much of now in the same way, I think. You well, know what I mean? I'll tell you what, I'll get, I'll get a job in uh, Roy's Rolls behind the counter there, and that can be the new catchphrase. Bacon yeah. butty. Another bacon butty. <laughs> although, of course, although of course, his new helper is uh, is not into that, is she? She's into uh, is she a vegetarian or a vegan or something? And she she will yeah. be getting rid of that kind of thing. So, what what about didn't you didn't you have some kind of work with Rick Mail as well or something? Is what was all that about? Do, have I read something about you and uh, Rick Mail in the last hour? Well, yes. Um... It's about, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years. Well, it's possibly longer than that. The Last Hurrah was a series set in a gentleman's club. And you talk about surreal, you couldn't get more bizarre than than uh, than this. Rick played a snowman who used to go in the club. He was called Elton, the eternal snowman. He never died. He never melted. He was, uh... and I played his best friend called Bonjour Hellfire, who was a failed northern ventriloquist who got thrown out of children in need for doing something very <laughs> untoward. It was it was a crazy series, it really was. And to be honest, it's really filthy. Yeah. Uh, as you can imagine with uh, Rick being in it, you know, there were no punches pulled whatsoever. Was it, was it ever on Radio 4? You're joking. No. You joke. <laughs> they, they actually did a, a, a bit on the BBC after he died. Um, I, I don't know if they managed to cobble a few minutes together, to be honest. But it was six episodes set in this gentleman's club. And it was it was to- totally crazy. It was a, an audio series, basically. And we, we did it down in Plymouth. So I got to hang out with Rick quite a lot. And it was absolutely wonderful. He, you know, from being a young anarchist, he he was a, an old anarchist. He was, he was still Rick, 
crazy, still crazy. I mean, we we went for a meal in an Italian restaurant um, lunchtime. We broke for lunch and I was out with, walked in front, we were coming out, I walked in front with one of the, uh, one of the writers and Rick's a few paces behind and all of a sudden I, uh, we heard him shout, pigs, oi, oi, pigs, pigs. So we looked around looking for pigs <laughs> and he was shouting at some policemen. About six burly, burly bobbies from Plymouth. So we, we sort of lengthened our stride and uh, he was most distraught that they didn't take any notice of him. You know, he was, he was, he was still Rick. He was still, still crazy. But to sit with him and have meals with him and listen to his stories about, you know, filming Bottom and the young ones and what the inspiration was. It was Tom and Jerry, you know, where they used to bash each other and with, with big pans like Mavis did to me. Um, it was their inspiration, Rick and Aid, was Tom and Jerry. The twentieth-century yeah, yeah. coyote. So, it was a, it was it was absolutely great working working with Rick. But I mean, that's quite a coup, isn't it, to to be working with uh, with Rick Mail? And um, I know it was a you know it, it was um, it was an audio piece, wasn't it? Something you could uh, I presume you could buy buy online, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you buy buy online, Amazon, iTunes, yeah. uh, that yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. Um, and he loved it. He said it was his last great character. Um, sadly, he turned out to be he turned out to be correct because he died shortly after. We were going to do another series. We had another series lined up. It was written, and he loved it absolutely. He, he had a big input into it. Six episodes, but an, another six lined up. But it it was sad that it never came to anything. It, it was absolutely great working with him, and he was very generous in his praise. And I was sort of co-starred with him in it, which was a a, a surprise and. They actually interviewed quite a few people down in a village hall in Barnes in London. I think he lived down there somewhere. And when I walked through the door and Rick's there, he introduced himself as if you didn't, wouldn't know who it was, you know. And he, 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 he was lovely. Who created it? Who were the writers? Um, two lads, Dominic Vince, Vince and Green. They created it because they were doing some stuff with Rick regarding some children's um, books. And then they mentioned this stuff that they'd written during it. Rick loved it, thought it could be expanded upon, had a massive input into it, and um, that's how it came about. And they wrote these six... I think they wrote the, the, the pilot episode, they made them write it about 20 times until they got it right. And then they, uh, six, six episodes, and it was sheer surrealism, sheer filth. Sheer fun. It's absolutely hilarious. The people, it, it, it turned into a sort of cult thing. And uh, after he died, we had meetings down in London to raise money for, uh, um, I think it's called Headway, because it was a charity. He, he fractured his skull falling off his quad bike and uh, yeah. left him with very, very serious problems. So we did, we raised some money down in London, having a full day, Rick Con, we called it. and. Playing his films, talking about him, quizzes. Pity it's not more widely known about, really, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you what, it would be great to hear it on radio. You could put a warning out beforehand, not suitable for anybody of a nervous disposition or prude, prudish disposition, but it, it is really, really funny. Um, people listen to it time, and I, I, get, I get people getting in touch saying, I felt really depressed, so I've, I've listened to it again and I'm okay now. 
which is great. I love hearing stuff like that, that you've done somebody good through some work that you've done, made people laugh. And of course, we recently also spoke to um, uh, Morrison Grant, you know, the writers of uh, Goodnight Sweetheart, Birds of a Feather, and of course, The New Statesman, which uh, Rick Mail uh, was in. And uh, uh, you can still listen to it um, on the Distinct Nostalgia Player or wherever uh, people get their podcasts. And uh, two, there's two parts. And uh, the second part, we talk quite a bit at length about Rick Mail. Um, you know, Morris and Gran, um, Lawrence Marks and Morris Gran um, really enjoyed working uh, w- with Rick and have got some great stories. Who, who, who wouldn't? I mean, it, it was it was a privilege. The series we'd, we've kicked off with Morris and Gran also includes other uh, great comedy writing legends as well. We've got Jan Everington coming up soon who wrote Second Thoughts, you know, Linda Bellingham and a plethora of other comedies. Uh, we've got Brian Cook who we'll be hearing from uh, with regards to uh, Man About the House, George Mildred, etc. Uh, we've got uh, Clement and Lafrene, you know, Porridge and uh, um, The Likely Lads. And we're also going to be talking to um, David Renwick, of course, from, uh, you know, who did One Foot in the Grave. I, I work with David Renwick as well because the, I was Ken Dodd's chief scriptwriter for six or seven years and um, used to go down to London to watch it being filmed and David was writing some stuff at the time. So I, I met up with David, we just go for drinks, you know. And I remember walking into the studio, uh, we'd been out for a drink and we, we got it, it was the time of the bombings, you know, there were bombings going on all over the show. We walked past security, he waved a sketchly discount card at them, got through that way, I waved a feather, and the guy with us was a BBC writer and he got in legitimately, but just to walk in past them with, uh, yeah. with no security. And I remember doing a Doddy show, I left, um, I used to go down and take my butties and some uh, beer in a, a duffel bag. And uh, they were recording Doddy Show at the theatre, the Shepherd's Bush, and I went for uh, went for a pee. Did you have to take a sleeping bag as well to be there all night? <laughs> uh, no, no, I had to come back on the the midnight coach. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had to come back on the late coach to uh, to get back and start writing for the next show. Um, I left I left a duffel bag on the seat, and it caused a. They thought it, they thought it was a bomb because there was nobody with it, you know. And I got a right bollocking when I came back. But yeah, I'm at. Met David. Uh, um, we went to the Mayfair Hotel once in London. Uh, we were invited down because I'd been writing a bit for the two Ronnies. And he was writing um, Ronnie's monologue. Barry, Barry Cryer was there and Spike Mullins. And uh, it was great because the two Ronnies were serving us. Uh, Would you like some more wine? Would you like some more? It was like being in a sketch with them. It was fantastic. Now, according to your Wikipedia entry, you've also written 14 books as well. Well, the latest one is my autobiography called The 30 Bob Kid. And that's sort of, that's from my um, inauspicious beginnings before the National Health Service was uh, <laughs> into being. Because they charged me, uh, charged me mum 30 Bob for delivering me, the, yeah. the midwife. So that, that's why it's called The 30 Bob Kid. And it takes it through all, all the stuff I've done, you know. There's some interesting stuff about my ancestors. I my mum met my dad in a munitions factory. He was a married man. Um, she was a lot younger than him. Scared to death of him um, as, as a boss, but they had a love affair. I was the result. So th- there's a lot to it. Um, writing for Doddy, the two Ronnies, and 
being in Corey and all the stuff I've done. Rick Mayall, yeah, it's um, it's good. It's got a 50-odd five-star reviews on Amazon. Very pleased with that. that that's great. That's great. I must, uh, must get a copy um, because you've whetted my appetite uh, listening to all your stories uh, uh, today about Corrie and uh, Rick Mail and uh, everything else, really. Um, really, really good stuff. So let's draw the conversation to an end then with a couple of um, questions, double-edged sword, edged sword question really. Um, obviously you've been in Corrie many times, um, 11 times in 35 years. My question to you is, if you were able to get a full-time part in Corrie, what kind of part would you like? Um, that's the ideal world question, that you know, a perfect part. Um, if it wasn't a perfect world, but you were told you could go back into Corrie, but it had to be one of the characters you've already played, which one would you like to bring back to life? Who'd you come up with these questions? <laughs> I, I think from the past, I'd probably uh, Bert, because he was, a, he was a crazy mate of Jack's. Bill Termy said to me when I was playing him, he said, you'll be back with this, definitely. They'll have you back. It's, it's a good character, you know, it's proper street, this. Um, and after I did the last one, they never did. And you get you get quite a bit of that, and so you, you're used to it. But I think Barmy Burt would have been a good one. But the one I'd like to actually do is the the latest one I've done, Barry. Because I think there's potential there. I think he could be like the pot man in the Rovers. Um, everybody's favourite granddad coming out with stupid jokes and, uh, you know... Not as interfering as Percy, but he likes to keep an eye on things in the community without being too nosy. He's somebody who cares for people, but likes making people laugh. Um, people confide in him, you know, make, he cheers them up when they're down and gives them good advice when they need it. Um, and he's a bit, he's a bit barmy as well. He can be a bit barmy, but yeah, something in the Rovers, behind the bar in the Rovers and... Uh, Having the having the dialogue with people who come in and, and working with Chris Gascoigne who, who who I like working with, you know. So I could actually apologise and <laughs> for uh, getting on on the uh, road to ruin again. Well, if they did bring you in as a main character, inevitably, um, depending on how long you're there, that they'd probably have to, uh, you know, to cement you being there. They'd have to bring in some kind of romance. So. Uh, is there any of the um, older ladies or maybe even the younger ladies, I don't know, um, on the street that um, you like to be paired with? Bring back Mavis. <laughs> well, she's only apparently in Cartmel, so she could come back for a few episodes, couldn't she? Oh, well, what about all of them? <laughs> well, you could compete with Ken Barlow then, couldn't you? Oh, my God, yeah. I could make Ken jealous. Um, yeah, and any of them, you know, just have a bit of fun and, and laughs with them. That that would be great. Um, I wouldn't want any sort of serious romances, I don't think. You might end up with Maureen Lippman's character. Well, Maureen, that would be great because um, a few years ago, uh, we did a play in Manchester at the Lassagari pub, which was written by her husband, Jack. And they were actually old Corrie uh, episodes. It was called Corrie Live. It was fabulous. I played Jack Walker and I had a great Annie Walker. We had a bloke who was Ina Sharples. He was the spitting image of her. If you look it up on the internet, it was it was fabulous. It was Corrie Live. 
And Jack Rosenthal, Ma uh, Maureen's husband, who's sadly died, um, he wrote the episodes, so she, she came down to watch it. This is quite a few years ago now, and I sat with her, and uh, and she was she absolutely loved it. I, I, I spoke to her afterwards, and she said, "Do you know, I'm not being patronising, but I thought I'll come and watch it, but with some sort of like Amdram production." She says, "But it's been phenomenal," she, and she was actually in tears um, watching the how we'd done justice to Jack's words, you know. It, it was live all around the pub, walking from one room to another. It was fabulous. And she absolutely loved it. And she did a speech at the end, praising everybody. She turned out, you know, very gracious lady. And apart in Coronation Street, it's a classic one. It, it's like harking back to the old days, you know. I think she's taken it on, grabbed it by the scruff of the neck, delivers the lines perfectly. Her timing is superb. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind interacting in some way with, with Maureen Lippman. It would be an absolute pleasure. Well, 60 years on, um, it's still going strong. You've done 11 parts in 35 years, and, you know, 35 years is more than half of Coronation Street's um, time. Um, it's a huge programme, not just important here in the UK, but around the world. How does it feel to have been a part of that? To be honest, it makes me very emotional thinking about it. Um, yeah. It's from being like a shy nine-year-old uh, who didn't think they'd amount to much to actually taking part in something like that is... Yeah, when you look at it that way, it's... It's, it's part of the British cultural tradition and uh, I'm very happy and feel very lucky to, to have been part of it and thanks for putting it that way, yeah. Dave, it's been brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thanks for inviting me. You're listening to Distinct Nostalgia, home to some incredible interviews with stars from all your favourite soaps. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not head over to distinctnostalgia.com for a treasure trove of programmes just like this. Lisa Williamson of Hollyoaks fame talks about life on the programme. So we all got to know each other quite well. If you were chatting to some of the writers about something you've been getting up to, they would sort of write that in. So you started realising that some of your personality traits would come into the show. And I got the script and I thought, what have I been up to? I got pregnant. I had the child adopted. It was, you know, and you just think, wow, the writers have really gone to town for me today. You know, it's, it was great, fantastic. Andrew Linford and Mark Homer reflect on sharing their first kiss on EastEnders in the 1990s. When the, the Blackpool episode came out, front page of the tabloids, it was like, get this scum off our TV and things like that. Just horrendous stuff. It, it was kind of the start of, of, of a big thing, really, and we're privileged to be involved in, in storylines like that, really am. And Nick Cochran discusses his life on the street as we continue our celebration of Corrie at 60. They were just brilliant with us, you know, because we were a couple of little sh who've fortunately found the way into the TV's biggest show without really knowing what they're doing. That's bottom line, that's where me and Simon were at that point. Myself and Simon are old school people. We were brought up properly, mate, and, and so there was a lot of respect then, more than there is now. These programmes and many more are available at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
subscribe to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you for listening and bye for now. Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.